Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Hey, Sunridge. Welcome, whether you're here on campus or you're joining us online. If you don't know me, my name's Britt. I serve the church here as the lead pastor. And uh, I just, I know that like either online or at church today, there's some of you that you don't usually go to church. And so I just want to prepare you for what we're about to do. I'm going to teach a section of scripture. We're just going to walk through a storyline that we're following that uh, describes the history of the first century church. And then at the end, I'm going to kind of turn it toward like, how does that apply to us today? And it's going to take about 40, 45 minutes, maybe an hour and a half. It depends on uh, how much feedback you guys give me. So let me start off, though, with a personal question. Okay, you ready for this personal question? Are you a prejudiced person? Oh, well, don't raise your hand to that. But let me, let me soften that question a little for you, okay? Do you think that you might hold some unknown stereotypes or bias? By the way, the right answer to the question is yes. Okay, because psychologists tell us that 95% of us have unconscious bias. Now, that includes everybody. It doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative or if you're a boomer or you're a Gen X or a Gen Z or a PQRST, whatever age group you are. It includes all of us. And you can think that you're in the 5% if you want to, but you're probably not. So I just want to let you know that. In fact, most of us hold prejudices um, about the question itself. And we have stereotypes of the kind of person that would even ask us such a personal question at church. So let me relieve your fears right now and anxieties about this topic. This is not a message about whether you're woke or not. It is not about CRT or systemic racism in the world today. It's not talking about banning books that are, that some would say are meant more to persuade than to inform. The book that in the Bible that we're currently studying is called Acts. And in this book, it's the story of the early church. It has instances of all kinds of miracles. There are healings. We've seen this so far. We, there have been earthquakes that shake down prison walls so Christians can escape. There are people dropping dead, and there are people resurrecting. But the biggest miracle that occurs in this book called Acts is how a person or persons change their mind about who can or cannot be part of God's family. People that they previously thought of as enemies of God. So far from God that there wasn't a chance that they could ever accept God or that God could even consider accepting them. That changes 
to a, in a dramatic way to a complete turnaround where these people who previously held these biases are actually pursuing people at great risk and great cost to themselves for the sake of Jesus. Now, as we've said, as we've gone through this book, that Acts is the only biblical record we have of the first century church. And, uh, but we've seen, as, as we've been talking about it, that this isn't just a history. These are our people. This is our heritage. This is our story as much as it is theirs. And what happened to them and what Luke tells us in his book, Acts, has implications for us today, 2,000 years ago. So today, we're looking at a section in uh, chapter 9, verses 32 all the way through 1048. And Simon, also known as Peter, returns to prominence. If you remember, like as we first started this book, uh, Peter is kind of like the front person. And then it went to Stephen, and then Philip, and then Jed talked about last week, we have the Apostle Paul, and eventually Apostle Paul is going to take over. He's going to be front and center for the rest of the book. But today, Peter is in the headlines again. And he's one of the first to have this dramatic new outlook on the world. And we're going to see today what changes his heart in this matter. And we're going to see in the beginning here four people that he comes in contact with that influence the way he thinks about people in the world. The first one is... Aeneas, and that is in chapter 9, verses 32 through 35, and as Peter travels northwest from Jerusalem, he's sharing the gospel as he goes, and he, he lands in Lydda, which is a, and there there's like this small outpost of Christians, and in verse 33, he finds a man named Aeneas who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. And if you're following along in your notes, you're just going to see that I've described these people, and if you want, you can pop their name in. Uh, Aeneas is most likely a Jew, but he speaks Greek, so he is a believer, though, we think. And the reason why that matters, that he would have a Greek name as a Jewish believer, is we talk, in, in other messages, we've talked about how there are different versions of believers at this time. And up until this point, by far the far majority of them come from Jewish background. But there are different kinds of Jews this time. There's the very traditional Jews that lived in Jerusalem, and so Jewish life was common life for them. But there are Jews that are scattered all over uh, the region, and a lot of them are raised in a more secular kind of culture. And so even though they share this faith, they have a lot of differences about them. And... Peter heals Aeneas, and um, just a few miles west from uh, where he is, uh, he, Peter travels to a community that's called Joppa. And when the believers hear that uh, Peter is in Lydda, they send men- messengers with an urgent request for him to come there. Please come at once. And the reason they're doing this is because one of their own has taken ill and uh, subsequently died. And this is Tabitha. But she also has a Greek name. And verse 36, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, and in Greek, her name is Dorcas. Now, why is Luke telling us that? Because she's a traditional Jew, but has been raised in a Greek culture. So she's different than Peter. 
even though they share this common faith. It's possible that she could have even been one of the Grecian Jews that we read about in Acts 6 that were scattered because of persecution. And here's what Luke tells us about her. First of all, he tells us that she's a wonderful person. She was always doing good and helping the poor. And then secondly, she's very dear to a group of people there. In verse 39, when he, Peter, arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room where uh, Tabitha is, and all the widows stood around him. These are her friends, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. So this is a group of widows that somehow have bonded together to make clothing for the poor. And, uh, you know, there's actually a group that, many, that some of our ladies at our church are part of called sewers. And they sew all kinds of garments for different organizations. In fact, you remember, remember the pandemic? And then when we had to start wearing masks, they made my first mask. Remember, you couldn't get masks? They made my mask, and it was super cool. It had animals on it, and wherever I wore it, people gave me compliments on my mask, partly because my face was hidden. But anyway, there's a group that does this, and these ladies, like, they're dear to me because I know many widows. I know widows in our church that they have a connection with one another and they love and care. They look out for each other. Peter dismisses everyone from this room where Tabitha is lying and he prays and she comes back to life. Now, obviously, when something like that happens, it doesn't remain a secret, right? And so even remarkably, without the internet, people hear about this. And in verse 42, this becomes known all over Joppa and many people believed in the Lord. And then Luke goes on to tell us that um, Peter stays in Joppa for a while with a man named Simon. He calls him Simon the Tanner. It's in verse 43. And so, in other words, he, he makes leather goods. But unlike Tabitha, Luke doesn't tell us very much about him, just, just this job, this business that he had. And uh, so if you think about this, as a Jewish person in that day and time, he is around dead animals 24-7. And so that would make him ceremonially unclean to the most devout Jews in the first century, which probably means he's not accepted. He's isolated. He looked, he's looked at a little bit askance. And his business was probably on the outside of the city because of the smell. So he's an isolated person. So these are the three people that Peter first encounters. There's Aeneas, and then there's Tabitha, and then there's Simon, and each of them are different. But up the coast, just a bit from Joppa, is a town called Caesarea. And that's where this fourth person that Peter meets, uh, and he's, he's like even further out of the norm than who Peter has been meeting. In, in Acts 10.1, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. So that's the last person that he meets, and I'm not going to read uh, right from your notes, but I want to tell you about Cornelius because he's a really interesting person. He's a Roman captain, um, Luke tells us, which means that he's very powerful, has a lot of authority, and this is a man that's been in battles up close and personal. 
But he must be somewhat of an enigma or a living contradiction to Peter. I mean, think about it. He's a warrior. He deals in death. And in the past, in the conflicts that the Jews had with Roman oppression, maybe even Cornelius has clashed with small uh, parties of Jews who are protesting or warring against uh, what they feel is being treated unfairly. But then in verse 2, here's what Luke tells us about this Roman captain, Cornelius. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing, and he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. You see how this is like an interesting person? When I think about Cornelius, I think about the people in our church that are in the military or law enforcement, and yet you're, you're a devout Christian. And yet, in your job, you deal with things that most of us don't want to think about. You have to be so incredibly brave and hard at times. But God also has your heart. That's the kind of person Cornelius was. And he has a dream or a vision, as Luke calls it. And in this vision, he's told to send some of his people to Joppa to get Simon Peter. And we don't know how that vision happens or anything, but here it is. This is he has this sense that he needs to do it. And as God will often do, he has two stories coming together that are going to come together. And he's working in two people separately in a way that's going to bring them in contact with each other. I think about, like, I grew up in Miami. Cindy grew up in a little town in Michigan. And people say, well, how in the world did you guys ever get married? God put us together in a Bible college in personal evangelism with Dr. R.O. Woodworth. That's how. That's like interesting. You guys should respond to that. <laughs> so at the same time, get this, that Cornelius is, has this vision, Peter's having one of his own. And uh, he's still at Simon the Tanner's house. And he goes up on the rooftop to pray. And as Jenny read at the beginning of the service, he sees something like a giant tarp coming down with all these animals on it. And he hears a voice that says, you can eat these as food now. And Peter assumes that this is God's voice, but he resists. In verse 14, he says, surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And I just want to note, doesn't this just sound like the Simon Peter that you know? It's like, you're not going to wash my feet, Lord. Oh, okay, you can do it. Or you'll never take us without a fight. And Jesus says, calm down, Francis. The voice that he hears responds, spoke to him a second time when he's resisting, and he says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. So what's going on here? What's happening here is Peter's in conflict with the dietary laws that he has fulfilled his whole life. See, for a traditional Jew, it wasn't just pork that was prohibited. There was a whole range of foods that they were not to eat. And that, that law was designed to, to separate the Jewish people, to mark them as unique. But it wasn't just a law about what you could or couldn't eat. It was also about the who who they could eat with, because it also included a tradition of not eating with those that weren't Jewish. And soon, Peter's going to learn here that this is not just about 
food, and some new restaurants that are opening up in his hometown. Peter has no idea what's going on at this point. It's so confusing to him. But it's going to become clearer, as God often does. God is going to put someone in his life to help him process what just happened. And so then the people that Cornelius was sending to Peter to get Peter, they arrive in verse 22 and they say, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And after spending the night there with Peter and Simon, they, along with this contingency of other believers, they, from Joppa, they go to meet Cornelius. And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. So the scene here is this really powerful, strong, decisive Roman captain humbles himself before the apostle Peter. Cornelius invites Peter in and the others. And while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Key point here, the house is filled with Gentiles. So this is not how to win friends and influence people from the beginning, right? It's like he said, I'm here, but I want you guys all to know that I'm super prejudiced against each of you because I'm above you. Not the way to start a conversation, right? But then Peter adds, this is like, this is going to smooth it over. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. I'm not sure that helped that much. So when I was sent for, he keeps going, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? And Cornelius then tells Peter that an angel had told him his name and that he needed to send for him. So thank you for coming. And I've gathered all my friends and family here so that you can talk to them. And he says in verse 33, we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Now, as a preacher, I'm a little jealous of this because you couldn't give him a better invitation, right? We're just here to have, hear what you have to say, and we're going to do it. Amen? Amen? Yeah, okay. So Peter takes the opportunity here. He says, I now realize that it is true that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Can I just read that again? I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And then, you know, Peter tells them about Jesus, and they believe, and Luke tells us they were baptized. By the way, on August 7th, we're going to be having a baptism here. If you've never been baptized since you became a Christian, whether it was like three weeks ago or 30 years ago, be a great day for you to follow your Lord, take, take a public confession, and demonstrate that through water baptism, August 7th. Now, this might just seem like 4.0 of Acts, right? Um, one of the apostles or someone else preached a message and people responded, blah, 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 blah. You know, but it's much more. You've heard the saying, it's not what you know, but it's who you know. It's not what's happened here. 
that's the key. It's who it happened with. Now, let me explain. We'll make some correlations to our day here and our time in Temecula Valley. Because remember, Acts isn't just a history of the church. It's our story. And what we see here is the church's stereotypes are being shattered. The main point here is that there is no they in the gospel. There is no they. You know what I mean by they? You know, they, them, those people. In the first century context, the Jews told stories of the awful Gentiles. They were sex crazed. They, were forced, they forced women to have abortions and to put their dead fetuses under their floorboards or down drains. They had filthy habits, and their culture was so foreign to them, and they had other religions. And then the Gentiles were the same. They told stories of how self-righteous and degrading and unsociable the Jews were. And so Peter stated the obvious when he entered Cornelius' home, and he stands before this crowd, he says, we don't even associate with you. We wouldn't even ever come into your house. Not that he'd be welcome either, but something different is happening here. Because the way society worked at this time is you do you, I'll do me. Keep your distance. I don't really care what you think. I'm not concerned about what you say about me or what I say about you. You are the bad people and we are the good people. You are the they. It's open and conscious prejudice against one another. And here's what's really interesting to me that we see in Acts, and I think this is how it translates to us today. There's an underlying story that Luke is telling that we can't grasp because we're not, in, we're not enmeshed in this culture. But for them in the first century, they totally see this. They're totally blown away by what is actually happening here and how, these, how unusual it is for their typical prejudices and ideas and stereotypes of one another to be broken down. Do you know that modern social scientists have identified how prejudices form? And, you know, human beings have been the same through every culture. Our prejudices are formed because we adopt them, first of all, like our family, our friends. We grow up and we're just told certain things about people. We, we develop stereotypes. We, de we develop, develop those based on our experiences and the way that we translate those. And we, we begin to generalize and then we start to use they. And so this person or experience that we had, it's overlaid to an entire group of people. And in our brains, uh, psychologists tell us, they want to categorize things. We want to put things, it's like our brains want to sort things. That's, that's a human um, thing that we want to do, and it helps us. It helps us put things in categories and make sense of what happens in the world. But the bad part is, is when our categorization takes place upon the basis of the stereotypes that we've developed. And if you lived in the first century, when you read this, you would be shocked at how the barriers were being broken down between people. And you would think, there's no way that they're doing this. Because Peter's going to his enemies. They look different. They act different. They talk different. They believe different. 
they are the they. They're unreachable. It's not even worth trying. So the best thing we could do is to identify them as the enemy and isolate ourselves from them and hate them, fight them, and overcome them every chance we get. I'm just so thankful that that's not an issue anymore, aren't you? You know, social scientists have identified how prejudices form, and they have also discovered um, how those prejudices change in people. But what they can't do is replicate it. There There are things that change the way we think about people. They know what changes the way we think about other people, but they can't replicate it. These are not the only factors, but they are the two primary ones. Number one, this is in your notes, our prejudices change when we know someone. And number two, what they call a motivating factor is involved. So knowing someone. Given there was enmity and ill will and hatred and a division between Jews and Gentiles, who did Peter begin to know from those people? It starts in Acts 6. When, they, when the church is um, infiltrated, overcome with Grecian widows who need help, and they have to think beyond their borders. Then he runs into Aeneas and Tabitha and Simon the Tanner and now Cornelius. You can see that God puts Peter in proximity to all these people and the, that were so different from, them, from him. And he has this experience in knowing them that he realizes they are not un reachable. Do you know that knowing someone like that has that effect on us? You know, you, when you know somebody that's a they, you can never think about them the same anymore. Because when, when you're in your group and they're talking about they, you think of that person that now you know as a human being, and it makes you uncomfortable. Because you think, you know, that's, they're not, They aren't all like that. I bet you if I asked you to raise your hands, which I'm not going to, so calm down. I bet you you could all say, I know somebody like that. I've been in that situation where I had an idea. And it was easy for me to be critical. But once I knew this person, it was just different for me. That's a human response that we have. The second thing that they say changes our minds about this is what they call a motivating factor. Now, what motivation does Peter have to change his mind about the Gentiles? Besides encountering them, God tells him. He has a vision. God gives him this vision where, like, these foods come down, all these animals, and he says, now you can eat them. That rule changed. And this is more than just cut out salt, okay? This is, this is for him, it's cultural. It's like these, the idea of eating these foods or eating with these people, it's, it's disgusting to him. Now, most of us sitting here don't have religious prohibitions to food, but we do have things in this country, in our culture today, that we find disgusting to eat. Can I entertain you with a few? So if you're squeamish, I want you to cover your eyes. I'm just going to share a couple. But like, when is the last time you were just thinking, I'd really like 
a plate of fried spiders. Is that picture in there? Oh. <laughs> never mind, never mind. It's okay, you guys. All right. Just imagine that I didn't even say any of that. And imagine all the gross things that you can think of, like that people eat in different cultures that we don't eat here. They're all real foods that people eat. But for us, it's like, oof, I can't even imagine. That is exactly the response Peter would have when he thinks about these foods. But the, but the metaphor, the vision, was not about food, right? It was about people that, people that Peter would have found disgusting. The they. You get the point? I know it would have been much better if I grossed you out with some foods, but Peter got the point. So very practically, what I want you to see happens here in this section of Acts is that God put people in Peter's path who were different. And he commanded him to change his prejudicial views. In other words, he allowed him to know some people. And number two, he gave him a motivating factor. He said, in essence, Peter, like your views of food, when it comes to the people I've called you to share the good news with, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. In fact, Luke tells us that it was repeated three times just so that Peter gets the point. And what is his response? It's a confession. In verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter says, I now see my stereotypes. I see my biases and my prejudices and how they are a barrier to me reaching people with the good news. There are no unreachables. There is no they in the gospel. Sometimes I think in our day and time, this is a confession that men in the church could embrace. As Paul would put it later in one of his epistles, God has broken down the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. And that, that breaking down of the barriers we'll continue to see in Acts. This, these different, disparate enemies, in many cases, people who come together under Jesus Christ, it's not going to be easy for them. The Jews, it's hard for them because they're losing their privileged position. The Gentiles have to acknowledge that there is a Jewish Messiah. And God is showing mercy to both, both the relig religious and the unreligious. Often I will say here that the gospel is this, that no one is so far from God that God's love cannot reach them. And no one is so close to God that they don't need the saving grace that is offered through Jesus Christ. And I wonder if God is not calling the church today in this day and time to be aware of and confess about the barriers that we might be either intentionally 
or oftentimes unintentionally, putting between us and the people that God wants us to reach. You remember, this is the main story of Acts. This is the structure of Acts, and this is how, this is how we can track what happens in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus told them from the very beginning, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This doesn't happen if they think that there are people who are unreachable. If they think that there is a they in the gospel, it doesn't happen. In fact, the main motivation for the church to change their views was a desire to share the gospel. That was the thing that was motivating them. This is going to be the common thread through Acts. The early church wanting desperately to take God's love to places that normally they would not be willing to go to, to people that they would not normally be willing to go to. I mean, why else should they change? I mean, they could have just remained a safe, little, comfy, agreeable group of 120 who experienced groupthink with one another, and they could just pat each other on the back and pray themselves into eternity, and uh, there would be no church. It would just be a little blip, blip on the radar. But that's not what they did. Their focus, their main focus, with all the drama that was going on in their day and time, their main focus, their desire, even in the face of persecution, was this, Acts 10.42. He, that is God, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify he is the one. Is that our primary motive today? Is that what wakes you up, wakes me up, the first thought in my mind? I wonder who I'm going to get to talk to about God. I wonder, like, am I going to be able to shine the light in the place that I go? Am I going to be able to live out the gospel, to demonstrate God's love? Am I going to be able to respond to something that comes at me that makes me uncomfortable? Am I going to be able to respond to that with God's love, to tell the truth of the gospel in a way that it translates to people and doesn't alienate them? If the truth alienates, that's one thing. But oftentimes, isn't it true that we're involved in that mix in some way or another? I'm going to ask the band to come up. And um, while they do, I think that most of us here, no matter what our prejudices and fears are, even if you think that you don't have any, that's okay. Um, we do recognize, if you're a Christian, we recognize that the calling of the church, Christians, you and me, is to put ourselves in a place where we can share the gospel with people. But you know there's a corresponding truth that goes with this thought that um, I think can help all of us, and I think it needs to be said. Are you guys ready for it? So you're asking me to say it to you, right? Okay. Three of you are. We will never reach people with the gospel that we treat as enemies. We will never reach people with the gospel that we treat as enemies. Now listen, every one of us, I think, I know I am, 
or passionately principled. Right? We have things that we really care about, and we should care about these things. But can I be honest with you? I don't understand the logic of many Christians today because it's not connecting up with what our main calling is. And you know what? This is true. It it doesn't matter where you're coming from. It doesn't matter if you're on the left or the right. It's just constantly issues come up, and we're playing whack-a-mole with them, right? And we're just like staying after them. It's like, and we we settle one, or one gets old, and then another. Have you noticed this? This keeps coming back up. And we're always stirred up. And in the middle of that, we have principles, we have ideas, we're passionate about those. But I think what we need to be thinking about is that these are not enemies that we're, that we're talking about or talking to. They're people that need the gospel just like you and I did at one time in our life. You know, at the time that I was becoming a Christian, you know what the worst curse upon American culture was? Hippies. <laughs> Hippies were the biggest threat going on in our culture. I mean, they were, well, we have youngsters in here. They were doing things. Um, they, um, they, they listened to rock and roll, and they had long hair. The guys did. And that was a big deal. And I've told you about the first church camp I ever went to where, uh, like, God changed my life, but, but it was in the midst of, like, some crazy stuff where the guy speaking there, his biggest message was, like, what was wrong with guys, men, boys, who had long hair and used hair dryers? And there was a whole sermon on that, and I happened to have long hair and a hair dryer with me at the camp. <laughs> and then he even offered to cut people, the guy's hair. So, like, he gave haircut. Every, all the long-haired guys went up front and got their haircut by him at the end of the service, except for one. <laughs> Imagine that. Somehow I didn't buy in. And um, that was the biggest thing. Now, at the same time, there was a guy named Chuck Smith. Anybody heard that name? What he decided to do, he's a very traditional guy, um, is he he went to the beach where they were all hanging out here in Southern California and he gave them the gospel and he showed them the love of God. Now, and out of that started a whole, they're they're non-denominational, but they're a denomination called Calvary Chapel. Anybody ever heard of Calvary Chapel churches? That's how they started. Now, do you and I remember the name of the guy that preached against hair dryers and long hair? Nope. Do you know Chuck Smith's name? Who made a difference? Who made a difference? Rather than chastising them, he went to them. And I think we need some more Chuck Smiths. We need Christians who are motivated by the idea that in the midst of all the turmoil in our country today and in the world, that we have an opportunity to go to people to demonstrate God's love You don't have to be a preacher, but to show God's love and have conversations with them. A lot of Christians today want to go to battle. They want to put on the full armor of God. That's a good thing. But we can never remember that those feet of that warrior are shod with the gospel 
of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we do not battle against flesh and blood. So this week, let's remember that no one is unreachable, that there is no they in the gospel. And let's try to remember that as Christians, God has called us to go to people far different than us, to go to places that we would never think of going in order to demonstrate God's love. So this week, Christian, think about the conversations and the opportunities that you have. Think about the people that you're going to encounter and what you say to them, what you post online, what the, the way you respond to what you see on television. And respond in a way that doesn't say you're an enemy. But be brave and be bold to enter into that conversation with people that are so different than you and take that opportunity to share God's love and to, and to tell why Jesus Christ is the answer to all the things that people are so stressed out about because there is no they in the gospel and there is nobody that is unreachable. Will you pray with me? Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.